You're listening to the new security broadcast from the Wilson Center's Environmental Change and Security Program. I'm Claire Doyle. Today's episode is the second in our special mini-series exploring the UN Climate Summit's new focus on relief, recovery, and peace. In the lead-up to the summit, we're sitting down with experts to discuss the implications of including peace as an explicit focus at this year's COP28, and what kinds of opportunities the conference might offer to move the needle on climate, conflict, and peace together. In this episode, Lauren Reese sits down with Mercy Corps' Chief Climate Officer, David Nicholson, who has spearheaded the organization's Global Sustainability Initiative, led the Climate and Environment Technical Support Unit, and played a key role in growing the Climate Resilience Program portfolio. David, thanks for being here with us this morning. Um, let's start by talking about Mercy Corps and your work there at that organization. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's great to be here. So I'm the Chief Climate Officer at Mercy Corps. This is a relatively new role. It's essentially, my job is to ensure that the climate crisis is central to everything Mercy Corps does. Uh, we have a new strategy that was launched over a year ago now, and one of the things we're trying to do with that is make sure that you know this climate crisis and what we define as climate and conflict is the two main drivers of crisis around the world, and we're, that's central to all the work that we do. So I'm trying to work across the organization to ensure that we have the right skills, the right resources, the right approaches, and, um, and the right team to, to execute on that vision. That's great. So when did this role take off? When did it start? This was just over a year ago. Okay. Yeah. And uh, prior to that, I was on the technical team that Mercy Corps I led for many years, our climate and environment technical team, okay. which supports our country teams in their program design and execution and, and tries to sort of elevate our, our um, program evidence and, and voice across the, the various forums of the world. Okay. And Mercy Corps is primarily working in conflict-affected and fragile contexts? Well, yes. A, a significant proportion of our, of our portfolio. We currently work in 42 countries. Um, we tend to begin working in places in response to a crisis that's usually conflict-related. Okay. And then um, as our work evolves, <clears throat> different contexts, it takes slight different flavors, but it's certainly conflict-affected states are certainly very high on our priority list. Okay, so tell us a little bit about how you have seen the connections between peace, security, and climate look like on the ground in those 42 countries. Yeah, this has been a really uh, evolving picture. And you know, if you think, look across our portfolio, you know, we're working, we've been working for over a decade in places like you know, Colombia, Nigeria, Mali, Somalia, Myanmar, Afghanistan, Iraq. These are all very diverse contexts, but they all share these conflict dynamics that are occurring. And one thing that we've we've seen is we've been you know seeking to build community resilience to crisis, which is sort of at the core of what we do. We've seen that the growth of conflict-driven crisis in places that are also on the front lines of climate change, the places that are also experiencing climate change in the most real sense over those recent years, and you know <clears throat> we're just we've become increasingly clear that these things are just incredibly closely linked. We know we have plenty of evidence, both from ourselves and others. Um, I think that uh, we're, we're very confident now to say that climate change increases risk of conflict. And we see that very regularly in places we work. At the same time, you know, conflict and tensions reduce the ability of countries and communities to address the climate crisis. So these things are, are really two sides of the same coin in many places that we work. Yeah, I remember we hosted um you all back in 2014 or 2015 to share findings on some work you'd done in Ethiopia, where you'd found that by sort of working on peace building efforts between communities, that when there was a drought because of that, that community building, that resilience that you had um, helped to lead with those communities, they were able to sort of take on the impacts of the drought with more resilience. 
Mercy Corps has really been a leader on thinking about environmental change and its connections to, um, to conflict and to peace. Climate change is slightly different, right? Because mm -hmm. it creates this whole big context in which environmental change, but also social and political and economic drivers are interacting in different ways. And, and you've really been leaders in thinking about what a conflict-sensitive lens to climate response looks like, but also what a climate-sensitive lens to conflict response looks like. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, increasingly we see those as a, as a distinction without a difference. Um, you know, it's really important to think about what does resilience building at a community level look like? And then how do you make sure that both these two drivers of crisis are being addressed together? You know, the, the Ethiopia work that you mentioned was really formative for us. Um, it really was uh, one of the, the early bits of research we did to truly understand how these dynamics interact with one another and what are the what are the capacities, what are the capabilities that communities need in order to build resilience to whatever the shock is, right? And, you know, I think it's never one shock. It's never one crisis. These things manifest in different ways. And when we think about the climate crisis, you know, we, we tend to talk about climate change in these, in these very global terms. And of course, it is a global crisis. But as it manifests in the places we work, what we're really talking about is the degradation of ecosystems, which provide important sort of livelihood resources. We're talking about less certain access to water. You know, we're talking about shifting growing patterns. We're talking about things that are very sort of real and, and lead to changes in day-to-day -day decisions in order to, for, for communities to succeed. One of the things we've really learned and as we think about, you know, our climate change and conflict work together is just the centrality of good governance. You know, successful resilience really begins at good governance. And this, this is the, you know, the, the ability of, we're usually talking about subnational governance institutions, whether they're informal at the community level or formal at municipal level. You know, these, these institutions need to have sort of the knowledge, the capacity and the technical skills to address resource conflict. Right? or to manage disputes that are emerging that are new, different disputes. As, as um, climatic conditions change, we're seeing different disputes over resources or other things. Um, and of course, respond to disasters. So we, that capacity of these subnational structures is just, is just vital to, you know, whether we're coming at it from a peace building lens or from an adaptation lens, it ends up in the same place. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, yes, absolutely, definitely good governance. Um, what does that, can you give us an example of what that looks like in the work that you're doing today. Yes, absolutely. Um, a couple of examples are, are drawn from from East Africa, where I think we've had a lot of interesting program since the work that you referenced in Ethiopia. Um, one program in in space in Uganda, in the border areas between Uganda and Kenya, it's called the ECASIL program. It's U.S. government funded. Um, ECASIL is a means peace in one of the local languages. I think Karamojong. The program is, is targeted at securing peace and promoting prosperity and there's sort of this underlier of this climate crisis that's, um, that's really shifting conditions pretty significantly in the area. So the core of our work there is, is to convene communities to address conflict risk that are emanating from this sort of complex interaction of ecological degradation and, and, and frankly collapse um, with the social and economic tensions that, are, that emerge from that. So our teams there are convening communities both on the Uganda side and from the Kenya side. And these communities are largely pastoral, right? You know, historically, this has been an area where, where people's livelihoods are based on herding animals over relatively large distances. That is in itself an adaptive livelihood activity. It is an area where the, the, the climate has always been marginal, right? It's not an easy place, certainly not for agriculture. Um, but what we've seen is the changes in rainfall. We've been seeing these, these extended drought periods and these sudden rainfalls. Um, means that the grazing patterns have to shift. They're much less predictable than they used to be. 
and it's causing a lot of tension over access to grazing land, you know, crossing the border, which is a very porous border and not really respected by, um, <clears throat> in any real way. So then access to, access to the land, some conflict with where there is sedentary agriculture, certainly access to water points, all these things become very, very real. And there's been an escalation of these. So working with communities to, you know, it's really a portfolio of good governance strategies. How do you manage the land well? How do you have a good early warning system so that you know there's changing conditions? How do you address conflict that happens across borders um, with communities that, that don't know each other particularly well because of this larger range that people are moving? And it's been really successful and, um, and the US government has been, has been starting to use it as an example of, of you know, how you can see very real positive outcomes, both economic and social outcomes, by addressing this, this risk of conflict at the heart of a program. So that's one that we're really, um, we're really excited to, to continue and grow. We have a similar program in northern Kenya that's been doing a couple of different things a little bit differently. The, um, it's also a, a pastoral area to, to some reasonable degree. And we've been approaching this from a climate adaptation first uh, lens, coming in with bilateral money from the US government and some other national governments to do war development planning. So this is the mechanism through which you really bring people together, say, what is a development plan here? How do we address various risks within these plans and conflict has become a part of that. It started off as a, how do we manage climate risk? And then you start thinking about, okay, but there's tensions over access to land, there's tensions over access to diminishing water sources. How do we manage those together? So we've got this really good sort of grassroots community building effort happening. We've then been able to bring in some um, philanthropic capital to work with the municipal government to do things like improve their GIS capacity, bring in the satellite data at a higher level so that these ward planning groups can actually access real-time information and data to help those decisions. So, you know, I think that a lot of this good work is really that steady dedication to community engagement and good governance and bringing in these extra resources when they're, when they're relevant and when the communities are, are demanding them. Are these communities that Mercy Corps has been actively engaged in for a long time? Yes, I yes. imagine there's a, a certain amount of trust that needs to be built in communication and... Absolutely, yeah. and in both these cases, um, that's, we, you know, we've been working in Karamoja for at least 15 years now, looking at this, this challenge of food insecurity and the various challenges that spin off that. And over time, it's become more and more climate and peace focused as we've seen those challenges grow. But that tr that community trust is necessary. And, you know, we have all of, you know, we have staff members who are that our leaders out there are, are from the area. They know the community groups. They're able to interact really, really successfully. And it's the same in northern Kenya. We've been working for a very long time and, and have a trusted name. That's essential. You know, you're coming in and asking communities to have some trust in you as a as us in a facilitator right, uh, of, of, of action. And so trust is essential. Yeah. And Mercy Corps has sort of uh, local staff right in places too it's it's you're working with a staff that is coming from the community as a well absolutely yeah. yeah i mean um in these examples probably 95 percent of our staff are from certainly from the countries and most you know most regularly from that part of the country so yes it's it's a, it's an almost all local staff team mm -hmm. that are embedded in the area and know the conditions and know the uh, know the dynamics right. Right? right and for those of us that support those programs it's really our job to make sure that our team members on the ground have the resources and access to the tools and guidance and lessons from other parts of the Mercy Corps world and other parts of other organizations in order to, to execute as best they can. That's great. Uh, so turning to thinking about COP um, and this, you know, so this is the first time that peace is explicitly mentioned as a programmatic theme at a COP. 
Um, it's mentioned with relief, recovery, and peace, so mm -hmm. it's not on its own, but that's okay. We forgive them for that. Um, and health is part of that thematic day as well. The, the conference is going to feature a package of solutions to support climate finance in fragile and conflict-affected states. And, and there's been a fair amount of discussion about how challenging it is to deploy climate finance in the places that need it most, correct? Um, and you all have done extensive work on this intersection of climate and conflict and also looking at policy solutions for unlocking climate finance in fragile states, which is part of the name of your recent publication, Overcoming the Fragility Barrier. So can you to walk us through some of those barriers to accessing, accessing finance in conflict-affected states and, and what you've learned in the work that Mercy Corps has done in terms of how we overcome those barriers? Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's a big topic for us as we, as we start to build up towards COP28, of course. Um, you know, first of all, I just want to say that it's been Mercy Corps' belief for a while that conflict management should be considered an adaptation strategy and should be really part of the climate action world. And so we're really pleased to see it. It called out at COP and it's something that we and many of our colleague organizations have been pushing for for a while. We felt that there's been a siloing of the humanitarian, the recovery, the peace-building world, that all of this stuff is very relevant, um, particularly in the more fragile and conflict-affected states. So we're really pleased to see it called out in some dedication. In terms of the challenges for, the, I mean, you know, there's no way around it that financing is the biggest challenge we're facing. You know, there is just simply not enough money. I think just today, actually, the UNEP's new Adaptation Gaps report came out, um, which they do on an annual basis, and they, they estimate that it, we're somewhere between 194 and 368 billion short of what we need to be meeting adaptation needs right now and it's actually been a decline of 15 percent since 2021 so we're going in the wrong direction so as we as we think about we have to think first about climate finance as a whole is woefully insufficient even within that envelope that we have of course there is nowhere near enough going to fragile and conflict affected states the last you know we've been trying to analyze these numbers over the year and try and track the the sort of somewhat murky and complex world of climate climate finance flows and we found that um we found 223 million went over the last, I think it was 2021, went to the 10 most fragile states. That's less than 1% of all climate finance, which of course is, is completely insufficient. So we've been working on some, some policy with our, with our peers on policy recommendations as, as we go into COP. And these aren't hugely surprising, you know, one is clear recognition among different climate funds that um, peace building equals adaptation. <laughs> Yeah. So to, to actually allow the, the money that exists to be dedicated to this nexus of peace building and, and climate change adaptation. And this does to some degree mean to sort of reinvigorate some of the nexus discussions because it is become really, really relevant and, you know, recognize that fragility, you know, there's a reluctance of climate finance to go to these fragile states because they're so fragile and, 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 and there, there's too much perceived risk associated. But the fragility is to some degree driven by the climate crisis. So we, you know, we have to recognize that. And I think there's not enough recognition from decision makers. And I guess as to the second, you know, another policy recommendation was to just really rethink risk. Climate finance tends to flow from the international finance institutions and follow their risk frameworks. And it means there's a real reluctance to, the risk appetite's just not there to get to the place that we need. So we really need to see a rethinking of what outcomes should look like and where risk is, you know, how we can increase the risk appetite. We look at the Green Climate Fund and if you see where the money's going from there, it's doing good work, but it's certainly not reaching the places that are in most need on the adaptation side. And also these are the countries that are least responsible for the climate crisis. So there is a real moral imperative underneath all of this. Absolutely. So what are you hoping comes out of COP28 and this recognition of the, the connections between peace and climate action 
at COP28. Yeah. Um, the easy outcome that we hope to see is a continuation of, of peace being recognized, right? The declarations that come out with COP, these things matter. The language really matters. So we want to hear agreements, declarations that are made. We want to make sure that both peace as an important part of adaptation and fragile states as being elevated in the climate discussion is really important. And we hope to see that. Um, <clears throat> we want to see more, you know, more risk um, discussions of how to increase risk among donors. And we just need to see more money. And we need to see more money to be dedicated to these places. We are yet to see a, even a, uh, an agreement on how much money should be going to adaptation writ large. We would love to see not only a target for adaptation financing, but a target within that of money that should get to fragile and conflict affected states. Has there been any calculations for sort of the investment in peace building yields X amount of benefits to climate adaptation? Um, they're very difficult to do. Um, but where we have been able to do our, when we've been able to study sort of holistic resilience approaches that, that include peace building, we know, we know that the preparedness and the resilient, the investments in resilience, including at the minimum conflict sensitivity, ideally sort of full peace building lenses, we've seen great um, outcomes of that. And those communities suffer less when crisis hits and are able to recover quickly. The precise amounts varies from context to context. So, you know, I, people sure. always want to put like a, a dollar figure on it. I think we always find that really challenging to do. But yeah. I think we've, we're, we've seen plenty of evidence to show that this is good investment. Well, and you talked about how the, specific, the specificity with which climate change impacts a given place varies so widely, right? Mm -hmm. And so putting those big numbers is hard to do and, and not necessarily helpful, right, in, in terms of reshaping or reframing how we think about risk and exactly. what the proper responses are. Um, I want to ask you one question about your title, Chief sure. Climate Officer. That's new. Um, and and I wonder, based on your, like, sort of the career path that you've taken and the job that you're doing today at Mercy Corps and this sort of recognition on the part of Mercy Corps of the need to integrate climate meaningfully across the organization. Do you expect to see more chi like chief climate officers um, at other institutions? What would, you, what would you advise young people, sort of emerging leaders in this space to focus on in their own work um, in order to become those next chief climate officers? Yeah. Um... It's a good question. It's, a, it's probably still something of an experiment. I think we're, you know, not many of our peers have this role. Um, it felt really important at Mercy Corps because we were really trying to grapple with the climate crisis writ large and, and recognizing that the systems and practices of our organization and of our sector as a whole were not really fit for purpose. So there is some sort of change management needed at the high level to, to shift our organization to be fit for purpose. I would imagine this is something, whether it's that exact title or not, I imagine we'll see more and more of these because it is really an all institutional shift that is required. You know, the, I, I often think the INGO world tends to be five or 10 years behind the corporate world. And, you know, there's plenty of chief climate officers appearing in, in, in the corporate world, the development finance institutions in recent years also. So I would imagine this is a, um, this is a trend we're likely to see more of. And in terms of advice for, for people looking to get into this, you know, my personal career path has been very, um, I've been lucky enough to have exposure to lots of different parts of the humanitarian development sector. And it wasn't, you know, I'm, I'm not an environmental scientist. I was, uh, my early career, I was fortunate enough to work in the Caribbean islands of Colombia um, following my grad school work where I got to work with an environmental agency that was implementing marine protected areas and biosphere reserve programs that were very environmental centered, but 
in a small environment like that, and when we're talking about you know very small islands, um, everything is so close together. So I got a real boot camp on how integrated everything is. You know, you couldn't think about marine biology without thinking about the economic and livelihood opportunities on the island, and then you couldn't think about that without thinking about the social dynamics between different groups on the island where there were tensions. So this very holistic view of development work was, has really served me well, and I think it's really important to think about climate change as a, as um, truly an integrated piece of the work that we're all trying to do. We at Mercy Corps have not set up a whole climate change department for me. You know, it really, my job really is with my small team is to ensure that we're integrating this work across and I think that's really important. There are risks to that and many people have experienced trying to integrate things and they sort of integrate away into nothing. So um, it is important that there's, there's, there's real substance and real teeth to it. So I think having, as people develop careers, I think, you know, exposing themselves to many different parts of the work. You know, I've worked in carbon finance in, in, in East Africa, following my, my work in, in the Caribbean in, in more sort of marine biology. So, you know, I got exposure to pretty different parts of this equation. That set me up really well to work at Mercy Corps, which does think, try and think about things in a, in a holistic way and works in places that um, you can't be dogmatic around a certain approach or certain theme. You sort of, you know, you sort of have to be able to respond to crisis and have to be driven by the communities you're working with. Thanks so much for being with us today, David, and thanks for the great work you're doing at Mercy Corps. Yeah, thank you. You've been listening to the new security broadcast at the Wilson Center. Thanks for tuning in. For more information, follow us on Twitter at NewSecurityBeat and visit NewSecurityBeat.org.